So we're going to do two weeks on Romans, and it is, um, as, as you probably know, just just from reading it, it is it is pretty tough going because it's so dense and thick. And I want to talk a little bit about where it fits and the impact it's had in in Christian thought, because that's almost the afterlife of Romans is as important as as the book itself. Um, so I'm going to be going off your sheet, but but skipping around some too. Um, Romans is the longest of Paul's letters, which is why it appears first. As you recall, uh, Paul's letters appear in the order of length first. Um, it was written from Corinth during his first three-month stay there, um, and it's different from the other letters in a lot of in a lot in several key ways. He had not founded the church at Rome, so he didn't have a relationship with it, nor did he have any direct authority over it. Um, it's obviously important because Rome is the is the imperial capital, and Paul is. It's generally considered that Paul is writing this as his last letter, and it really is a more of a theological treatise than it is. Um, there's not the personal back and forth and the response to situations that there are in the in the other letters, which which makes it different. It's also generally a reflection of his of his mature thought. Um, it has a, I'm not sure I've got this here in the way I want to, but um, Romans has had a really significant history in, in the life of the church. And I, yeah, here, um, this is not on your sheet, but it's, but it's something that I wanted to say. Um, there are three major Christian thinkers who have who have been involved in the church writ large making a theological turn or a really important uh, time of, of theology in in the church, and one of them is is Augustine, um, and Saint Augustine who wrote the Confessions of Augustine. He wrote the City of God and the City of Man, but the Confessions of Saint Augustine are really important literature. And it sort of marks the first time in in Western literature that that there was an inward turn. I mean, Augustine is essentially one of the first mem- memoirists, if that's the word, giving giving an account of his own life. And and you may know that he had a reprobate younger life, and reprobate is a really big word to cover a multitude of sins, all of which he experienced and experimented with and then he had a conversion to Christianity and he became um, the Bishop of Hippo North Africa and is really the person who contributed to Christianity the the rediscovery or re-emphasis on the, the idea of original sin just the idea that we are all marked by the fall and um, Augustine tied that in a way that early thinkers did almost almost uh, Literally or biologically, to uh, um, to the act of intercourse. I mean, it was it was like biologically passed on down through the ages, and and Christianity has has obviously moved away from that. But but the concept of of the human condition being less than what it is supposed to be is what is what Augustine contributed. And if you were in Calvin, if you were in Patrick's class today, I'm sure he made a comment or two that that was a contribution Calvin made. The church has always restored to this, returned to this idea um, of 
of the sinfulness of humanity. Um, if you fast forward to the Reformation period, Luther, uh, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest who in many ways, like Paul, uh, was a super precocious priest who did everything that he could to catalog every sin or faux pas that he made and, and go to confession. And there's, Phil, you may have some background on this, or you likely do, but there are stories of of his confessor, his father confessor, saying, just shut up. You don't have to bring everything you did wrong. I mean, it, he was just manic about doing what he needed to do um, to, to get right with God. Um, one story is him kissing the steps to the cathedral, uh, every step going up. Uh, and the father confessor told him he was confessing too much. But he wrote Romans and, and had a something of a conversion experience and came to the concept of grace alone, that we are saved solely by grace, that we do not have the ability uh, you know, to confess or to obey upon our own. And that certainly is consistent with Augustine's original sin. In the 20th century, the theologian Karl uh, Barth had also you know, started what was called the Neo-Orthodox Movement when he wrote as a pastor at the end of his, his uh, pastoring days, although as a young man in Detroit, he wrote a commentary on Romans. He too, like Luther, and you know, Luther wrote a commentary on Romans as well. Um, and and Bart's, what, what Bart's change was is that he rejected what, what was called at the time 19th century liberalism in theology. And, and Schleiermacher was the main exponent of that. But essentially what 19th century liberalism was was a belief that, uh, in, in, unlike today's sermon, in human progress and in, um, in the educability of mankind, that if, that if um, Schleiermacher basically taught that every person has, with, has an innate sense of the divine, an innate desire for God, he called it a feeling of absolute dependence, and that if the church can just take that feeling and sort of lead it, develop a religious consciousness or develop um, education out of it in, in an individual then social problems will go away and the human condition will become better. It's a really belief in progress. Um, World War II, I mean, World War I shattered that, that optimism, as it did, you know, the progressive movement and many other, other things in American history. But again, Bart is the one who, uh, who interpreted Romans as uh, he really he really looked at Paul's wrestling with the law in Romans and and wrote that we should substitute for the word law the concept of religion and and what what Bart was brilliant at doing was emphasizing that even when we are at our religious best and we think we're doing well is exactly when there's a trap 
and we fall. Um, so, and, and he was very influential in, in 20th century thought by just reminding us that again, this, persicate, this persnickety thing called sin or evil is very difficult to shake and cannot be shaken on our own. And Bart also developed, you know, the concept that it, that is truly God's power and grace alone that that can save the human creature. So that, um, I mean, all of those have been have been very very important in in the function that role has that that our Romans has played. What I want to do is give you a couple of 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 people that I have studied under and their um, you know what they emphasize in Romans and then I want to give you at at the end of our time before our discussion just two uh, ways that this book has been very revelatory to me um, in in the last 20 years and have really helped shape my my religious identity. So I admit that this is somewhat autobiographical, but it's also somewhat easier than trying to explain the whole book itself, <laughs> which we'll we'll do as well. So as we go along, but um, so the first one is from a, a scholar to, who taught for many years at the University of North Carolina uh, named Paul Meyer. So I'm following him. Uh, on your sheet on Paul Meyer's introduction, and we'll point out some of what he some of what he says here, which is really consistent with with what I've been saying. Um, Meyer points out that there are many themes in Romans that echo passages in the other letters. For example, the failure of the world to know God on God's own terms. Chapters one, I mean, the first chapter of Romans is is very much like the first chapter of First Corinthians, in that it is an eloquent and sometimes difficult to read um, statement of how far we are as human beings from understanding God, or from the ability to understand God. Um, a second theme that Meyer sees in Romans is justification by faith rather than works of the law. You see that in Romans 3, in Galatians, and in Philippians. There are analogies to Abraham in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, an analogy between Adam and Christ that in Adam all fell, in Christ all will be revealed. So these this uh, sort of... Um, symbolism of, of the two figures that is developed and then there are eloquent passages in Romans as there are in Corinthians of the church as the body of Christ we we saw that a lot in Corinthians and the idea of this building image of of the body um, the what is you what but then there are some things that are absent from Romans too um, Unlike the other letters we've been reading, there's no discussion on Paul's part of the nature of his apostleship or his call. Paul, there does not appear to be opponents that, that he's reacting against or having to defend himself against, as we've seen in the other letters. And uh, there's no defense of his credentials or cataloging of the trials he had to endure, nor is there an account of his Damascus Road experience. He's just not in the business of talking about or defending himself in Romans. 
Um, he also does not have the angry or polemic tone that we saw in Galatians and, it's, and in some of the Corinthians letters. Again, in those letters where he was in a correspondence back and forth with people, in, in Romans, it is a thoughtful, studied, well-rehearsed, and organized argument, even though it's hard to follow. It's not an argument that he's writing in the heat of battle. Um, there is uh, now Meyer's thesis about the book, which I'm I'm going to say I'm just going to kind of do this on my own because it took me a while to figure this out. Too, um, Meyer has a very long article called "The Worm at the Core of the Apple." which is a really interesting title for an academic paper, The Worm at the Core of the Apple. And so I, when I heard about this article, I got it, Xeroxed it, excitedly read it, kept looking for the worm and looking for the apple and looking for the core, and none of them appeared. It was strictly the title of, of the essay. But what, if you think about the image, uh, the apple is a very beautiful and delicious fruit. I mean, it is just a wonderful fruit. It's moist. It's white. It tastes good. It's, it's, you know, it fills us. Uh, and obviously, uh, the only thing that can really corrupt an apple is if it's rotten on the ground and then you don't pick it up and eat it or a worm. And a worm and an apple is always at the core. And what, what Meyer says is that where Paul is brilliant is that he equates the law, which is the entire Jewish structure of obedience and way of life, as we've talked about before. I mean, we hear law as Christians and we think rules and regulations, but, but the law in Romans is really Paul's uh, is really the the structure and belief of Jewish religion and what Meyer says is that even when the law or or religion rises to its best when it is the whitest juiciest purest shiniest apple that we have in our hand there is a worm at the core of it that corrupts it. And it is that, it is that worm that Paul, I mean that, according to Paul Meyer, the Apostle Paul sees as sin. And the, the brilliance of that is that if you, if you trace back the way Romans has been used, we certainly have an image of of someone like Luther who is in a monastery utterly devoted to God a life of prayer and of service and of study and of confession as being the pure white apple and yet Luther himself found that that the pride or the that came with that or the inability for even that to to connect him with salvation uh, was his great discovery. So what he was discovering was 
the worm at the core of the apple. That even when we are at our most religious or human best, there's still that little worm crawling around, you know, that gets us. Um, that is really what Bart discovered in, in 19th century liberalism. I mean, when you, when you think of how much human progress was made in the 19th century, and especially sort of after, um, after the American Civil War with the progressive movement and industrialism and, and, you know, there was just so much development and so much hope and sort of the, the modern education system, the, the, the theories of education were, you know, were developing. And it will, it really was a period in which there was great optimism about the human condition. Uh, I mean, you know, Wilson voiced that that World War One would be the war to end all wars. You know, just the concept that that we as human beings would be able to end all wars for all time in our lifetime is a wonderfully optimistic view of human nature. And what Bart said is that so when we've risen the highest and we have this great idealism there is still this worm at the core that causes us to crash. And, you know, 20 years later, we had Nazism, you know, World War II. So Bart was proven right, even though he, was, he wrote in 1927, but, but, you know, Nazism came within a few years. Um, and, and I just, again, I tie this back to, um, if, if you'll remember what, what I read, what we read about, are from James Kugel when we were talking about the law. And, and when you think of some of those passages in Paul's life where, you know, where he was saying, you know, I was far advanced in my age of Judaism. I was, I was the top kid in the class. And yet even then Paul said I was not, you know, I could not do it on my, my own. So that's, so if the worm at the core of the apple is, the inescapability of human sinfulness, then that is what Paul is brilliant in outlining and what his best interpreters throughout history have been brilliant in rediscovering and reminding the church that, that we have to go, but that we can't get rid of original sin. We can't get rid of... of, uh, of you know, that our, that our idealism and our... And our Hope for perfectibility of the human creature is is not uh, is not realistic. Um, where uh, if you look at the second half under Paul Mar- um, under Paul Meyer, where it says Meyer's thesis, um, I'll, I'll I'll read this and see if it fits with with what you think that I've that I've just been saying. Meyer's thesis is that in Rome the adversary is in large measure the the accomplished Hellenistic Jew that Paul himself was. I mean, remember Paul was this bridge between Judaism and the Greco-Roman world, and he was an enormously accomplished person in in making that bridge and and reaching out to include Jew and Gentile into the faith. So, so in a sense, Paul was a religious person, person in his highest aspirations, in his self-esteem, in his devotion to God, 
in his full knowledge of what God requires of human beings and in his continued loyalty to the Jewish Torah. Yet Paul was also one who, despite all these virtues, um, does not realize uh, that the religious life has been poisoned and perverted by the power of sin. At times he didn't realize this. And needs to be shown how God has provided in his son Jesus Christ a way of obtaining the integrity, the righteousness of one's relationship to God that has always eluded religious people. Meyer calls this the worm at the core of the apple, that is the power of sin at the core of something that is good, at the core of law or religion. And I think um, without sending us too much into despair, um, if you if you think of the greatest human accomplishments and even the greatest human experiences um, of of you know of love of of love uh, between two people who've committed their lives to each other of love for a parent for a child or a child for a parent um, of of the scientific discovery of knowledge of um, self-sacrifice, of heroism, of, of people giving their lives, there, there is hardly any human act that is pure, that is not free from some kind of, of hubris or that is not, um, that is not corruptible at its essence. Um, and, and that is the that is the that's the worm at the core of the apple that that I think is is the brilliance of Paul and why something like um, something like original sin which has a bad name in Christianity doesn't really deserve the bad name it's it is a realistic assessment of the human condition and the inability of the human creature to pull ourselves out of it or to be safe to be saved from it on our own power. Is so, that, Terry. Is that somewhat analogous to what I read where it said about human nature? Yeah. Is the distinction between body and mind? Um, yeah, I, I think. I'm, I'm not sure where that distinction between body and mind is. but well, In some of the passages you talked about how it's human nature uh, to follow what would be Maybe under the law, but if it was was being adversely used or yes. not pure, yes. then it really was or not corrupted. corrupted. Yes, or corrupted. It would yes, not be really a um, characteristic of justification. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, as opposed to, in other words, having your mind think about what is good and using that as a barometer. What what he would say, what what Paul would say, and we'll we'll get to these passages in a minute, is that again we don't have the ability to rescue ourselves, and it's and it's really the passage, uh, you know, wretched man that I'm that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God, Christ, who in Christ Jesus has has done that deliverance. There's a pause there, 
Because the answer is no. Nothing can deliver us from this bondage to sin and death. Nothing. But thanks be to God because Christ Jesus has done that. And and that's, uh, I mean, that's really where where Paul is. Now let me, I'm I'm feeling really warm in here. Is it just me? Yeah, I don't, I, you think, I don't want to, and the tables are a little bit different, so. If y'all can bundle up, put your gloves and hats on. It'll help if we open this window a little bit. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think it'll help. It's it's uh, when the, when the heat's on, I can't turn it off in this room. I can turn it on in this room. I can override it on, but not override it off. So. Building and Yeah, I know. So I know. So it's just the. And, and that varies room to room. There's some some rooms where you have absolutely no control. So, but anyway, I think it'll help if we get a little circulation. So, so let me so let me next turn to to Beverly Roberts Gaventa, who um, is somebody I've not studied under Meyer, um, but Beverly Roberts Gaventa is is a woman that taught at Princeton Theological Seminary, which is one of our seminaries for many years, and then she, about ten years ago. Uh, was given a chair at Baylor University, which is actually a very, very good religion department and uh, has a lot of money. Has their football and basketball team, and they're, they live in Texas, and they're Baptist. And so she went down there. The three foundations of the University of Texas. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I lived in Texas a long time, so... Uh, anyway, um, and Gaventa, I think, is really good on Paul, and she's the one that, that um, I'll share with later, was, was very helpful in, in, in a revelation for me. Uh, what she argues is that uh, the horizon of the letter is something that, that we as Christians need to be pushing further. Um, she says that according to the mid 20th century scholars, which would be, um, you know, in the 19, 1950s or so, the focus of the question of Romans is the, is the question of personal salvation as articulated by Martin Luther. What must I do to be saved? How do I get or receive salvation? And I will tell you that that is the way Romans and Paul and almost all of Christianity came down to me as a kid born in the 1950s, you know, in, in America, is what must I do to be saved? Uh, so in Juventus words, that question is about me. It's about me. Um, in the 60s and 70s, she says that scholars seem to gravitate to reading Romans as having to do not just with individual salvation, but with the fate or destiny of some corporate or communal body. And most of this applies to next week's reading, but, but you can read Romans through the, through the question of what is God doing about the people of Israel now that the law has come, now that Christ has come. And that really consumes chapters 9 to 11. Or, what is God doing about the Gentiles? What is the role of the Gentiles in this Christian movement? Um, Or, 
and and that has been translated or can kind of be translated for us into a question that we all live with, even if sometimes we don't articulate it. What does God do about non-believers? What about that family with whom my kids play that are a wonderful family and have wonderful friendships with my kids, but who mow the lawn on Sunday morning when I'm going to church, who seem righteous in every way but are not Christian? Uh, Or what about that, you know, the people across the world who, who have not grown up in Christian cultures but who seem to embody characteristics and traits that, that we admire. Um, but, but all of that, that question is, if the, first, if the first concern is it's about me, the second concern is it's about them, the Jews, the Gentiles, the non-believers, um, the neighbors next door, the non-Christians. Um, in Gaventa's view, the horizon of Romans is much larger than the individual relationship with God, and it's much larger than the relationship of God to Jews or Christians or non-believers, or it's much larger than the relationship of Paul to the Romans, which is another kind of little side thesis. Rather, in her view, the horizon of the book of Romans and of Paul's concern in it is cosmic. It is God's conflict with the anti-God power, which would fit with the idea of original sin. And it's God's effort to rescue all of humanity from this anti-God power. Which is is why the book, um, I think, is rightly used to say that God really seeks the redemption of everyone, of Jew, of Gentile, of Christian, of those who know about Christ, of those who don't, of those who've come before, and indeed the redemption of all of creation. Uh, because it is a cosmic, it's, she's almost depicting a cosmic battle of God and the power of, of evil or the anti-God power. The evidence that she states for her view, for this cosmic view of Romans, it is really best found in, in Romans chapter 8. And chapter 8 is probably the most famous chapter in the book. And it's a, it's a chapter that is often used at funerals, rightly so. And what she points out is that in, in chapter 8, which I think I'll, I'll, Go ahead and read most of it to us. Uh, all the all the negative anti-God forces are almost presented as as characters. You can almost capitalize the names of sin, death, gods of this world, rulers of this world, height, depth, and slavery. They almost take. These abstractions almost take a life of their own, take on a life of their own. So, so listen to, to chapter eight, uh, through the lens of, of, of this conflict theory that she's got. There is therefore now, I'm starting at eight one, yeah, there is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And again, think of capitalizing law and sin and death. That it's, it's the Spirit of Christ Jesus that has set you free. Not your own religious effort or not your ability to make progress. It's, it's Christ Jesus that has done this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, in, in American religious culture, when we hear, or at least what I heard growing up, the contrast between flesh and spirit, we typically think of flesh being body and of flesh being sex, that it's, that it's a bad thing, uh, and that the spirit is what saves us, you know, from this contrast of flesh and spirit. She is seeing flesh and spirit in in a much bigger context uh, as almost these enemies that are battling. And and, and the thing that, that Paul does is he is a great defender of the Jewish law and, and, and the richness that it gave him and, and the richness that's in it. But it is precisely in its richness that it that it has become corrupted, and that's what you have to keep in mind. And so, if um, there's a, I've, I've used this in other classes, but there are in other lessons, and I may have used it in here. And, I, and I'm not going to get this completely right, but I absolutely love Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology, and there is a and if you if you know the work it is people talking from the grave in this small town of Spoon River Illinois after they've died and it's a contrast of of the good reputations they have and yet talking from the grave they're saying but this was the real situation this is what it was really like and there's one called um, I wish I had this but I think it's it's called Constance Hately, if you can think of constant and hate. And it basically goes, uh, you praised me, Spoon River, for taking into my home my two orphaned nieces, you know, Mary and Agnes. But what you didn't know, Spoon River, is that 
I poisoned my benefactions with my constant reminders of their dependence on me. And what is brilliant about that is is Constance Haley is saying from her grave, yes, I looked good doing this, but I spent the whole time raising them, reminding them that they were dependent on me. You just remember where you'd be if I hadn't adopted you. You just remember where you'd be if I hadn't brought you into my house. And and that is the corruption of something that is that is absolutely good and beautiful. And for somebody to take in their two nieces and raise them, what more can you do? You know, that's just the embodiment of the law. But from the grave, Constance Haley is saying that even as I did that, I corrupted it by constantly reminding them of their dependence on me and constantly reminding, uh, you know, by taking so much pride in it, I just used that to the hilt. That's that's what, um, you know, that's part of what would be going on here. Um, and that would be the flesh. That's not, that's not roaming around in the gutter you know, with prostitutes and whatever. It's not experimental sex. That is a woman who takes in two nieces but corrupts it by her pride and by her manipulation of them at the highest moment of her life. And and that's a profound, you know, a profound way that the power of sin gets us. Um so let me let me let's skip down to verse twelve and then then I'll I'll finish with this because because the it finishes great. So then in verse twelve, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, like Constance Haley, you will die. But by but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Um, Paul is contrasting again at a cosmic level the spirit of being enslaved to a demanding or brutal parent versus being adopted by a loving parent and and giving ourselves over to that parent because of love. It's like, you know, slavery and Bondage. I mean, slavery and freedom are these two forces that are battling. And again, he would obviously see slavery as being the worm at the core of the apple. Uh, and then starting at verse 31 is, is the very famous passage that we say very often at funerals. And it's where you have this battle between the power of death and, and the power of life. 
So hear it in this context. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That's battle language. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, not me kissing the steps, not me going to confession, not me following the law, not me adopting my two nieces. It is God who justifies. Even at my best, I don't have the ability to justify myself. Uh, Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then you have all these enemy forces. Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, it's battle language. And then no, Paul says, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And and that is, I mean, you can imagine the power of reading that at funerals. Because it is, it is the promise that it is what Christ has done that wins this battle that we as human beings are not able to win. And, and therefore what, you know, what Gaventa says, I mean, the way she said this when I first heard it in 1999 in a, in a seminar that she led at the Movable Feast, if you'll remember, what, what do you remember about uh, Bill Clinton's 1992 election. What is the phrase that Carville coined that tipped it? It's the economy stupid. It's the economy stupid. That was a famous phrase that led probably more than anything else to the election of Bill Clinton. It's the economy stupid. What Beverly Gaventa said seven years after that when I had when I had the class that her summation of Romans is it's God stupid. It's about God. It's not about you. It's not about your conversion. It's not about uh, you know what you believe or how well you follow the law or how much you're accomplished. It's about God stupid and what God has done in Christ. And so it is a very massive and cosmological thing this death and resurrection of Christ, to which we can only bow down and respond and live in the power of. And I'll go into that in a few minutes after our break. So I know I'm doing a lot of talking, but let's have time for a few questions, and then it'll be cookie time again, or it's not cookie time, it's banana bread time. We have graduated to a fruit group, okay? (laughs) So this is health food night, so everybody have two pieces. So any anything you want to say about this? Yes, Joanne.
Yeah. It's very Calvinist, yeah. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I do think that we're we're capable of altruistic acts, but I'm not sure that that we're capable of a solely altruistic act, a, a pure act. So I don't know. Yes, Curtis. I, I like that what he says about you know if you follow the law. Yeah. Yeah. I, I realize that today with the sermon and with Patrick teaching Calvin, you know, and me teaching this, this is sort of dark day. This is bleak day. This is what humans can't do day at Westminster, you know. So it's Lent. I mean, this is like Lent on steroids, you know, today. Uh, but it, but I don't, cons- as you'll see later, I don't consider this bad news. I consider it. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and that it is it is this act of God in Christ that frees us from this, ultimately, which we'll get to the second half. So Terry and then Frank. I've got a question, I guess. In the sense of the context when it was written, what do you think influenced or kind of uh, initiated his theological I know you've been moving the last month and have not been able to be here, so I want to say everything we've been talking about the last month. Uh, I mean, Paul was a, for all of his flaws, he was a brilliant thinker who was able to take his own accomplishments in Judaism, see them as flawed, and and give witness to this breakthrough that that was Christ. So I think it's hard to, it, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't him. It wasn't him. Gail, is that just a, a shift of the arm? So me? Yes, yes. Okay, okay. So Frank, and I know this is probably different than what how you all have been raised on Paul. So I'd be fascinated to hear. Yeah, I. Uh, what's your? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the former Catholic caucus. Of <laughs> um, I, uh, growing up and listening to, uh, I came to appreciate uh, Romans and Paul as describing the virtues of a sort of asceticism, mm-hmm. right? That you were going to be closer to God if you suffered. You had to make sure that. Yes. But there is a closeness as well in one appreciating that notwithstanding all of the things that we do and all of the sin that we commit every morning before we roll out of bed, that 
God loves us also to give us enjoyment uh, of one another and of beauty and of grace and um, and it's a and it's an amazing humbling yeah. set of gifts that, that God gives. And I wouldn't want someone to get through Romans and think that wow, what I've really got to do is just you know, although God did all these things. Basically, what he's saying between the lines is, gut it out. We're not going to get it. Yeah, yeah. And and stopping a moment to realize the magnificent (coughs) gifts that he has given. And even in the gifts that occur during suffering. Yes. Is is a treasure a lot of people could could learn. Yeah. And it's a treasure that nobody can. Right. That's really good. You've got a great understanding. That is very good. You're going to lead right into the next segment. So, Dana, one more, and then we'll... One of the things that um, I've always... uh, I've learned to understand about Jewish law is that it's gift, and of course I might not be but this is the way I think about it. It's gift is that the entire time... I mean, there is a prayer to say after you've called. I'd say mm-hmm. it a lot, but there's a prayer in every instance. Right, right. Consequently, the concept to me is that the law is there to make you in constant communion with, with God. God. Yes, you've got that. So, then, why do we need to go beyond that? Because, in my way of thinking, it is it has not shed the light on the concept of grace and, con- and, and, and Jesus and so forth and that's where you know that goes on for me but I, I see it as as um, that's a wonderful thing to be a part of the law now yes. if you start thinking oh look at me that, it, that it's a wonderful thing this right. Right, you right. Know, then I'm eating a worm Right. But if, if I'm simply continuously having the relationship, it's a beautiful thing, yeah. but it just doesn't give me any relief to say about grace. Yeah, yeah. Y'all are really leading into the next segment, so this is great. Go get your fruit group today. All right, take about 10 minutes and enjoy. So, this is, um, this next segment is, is not printed. So you sort of have to follow, uh, you just have to follow me on this. And it is, um, I'm sort of putting myself in, in Luther's question of, of, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? And, and this is sort of, this is a personal account of, of uh, how I've come to, or, or of a major turning point, I would say, in my religious life, even though my religious life has kind of always been there, and so the turning points are probably not as major as they, they would be for somebody. But but I want to do this in the context of Romans because it was an equally liberating passage for me. Um, all my life growing up in the South, I I have wrestled with and evolved and to some extent resolved the revivalist question that I, that I grew up with in the in the Bible Belt uh, that's expressed in Romans, and that is that as a Southerner, 
and a mainline Protestant in a Bible Belt dominated evangelical culture. The the you know growing up when I did in the 50s and 60s in Memphis, almost everyone was either um, an African American Baptist, and it was segregated enough then that I didn't have much contact with with that uh, other than playing basketball, or the, the large white Southern Baptist um, congregation. So you know, you go to school, and all your peers were were uh, were Southern Baptist, and were involved in um, in youth groups and movies and and uh, Young Life and Navigators and things like that. And, and no matter what they were doing on the weekends, there was always the question whenever religion came up, you know, are you saved? Period. Uh, and and it, the, the, it's the question Luther faced. In other words, well, what does that mean? Or what do I have to do to be saved? What must I do to become right with God? Um, but as a kid, I knew I grew up in a church that, that didn't ask that question. That was a much more typical Presbyterian, quiet, private uh, church. And I and I, I never had a thing to rebel against in my church. I was always proud of it. Um, but I spent my teenage years trying to define um, with a couple of other friends what it meant to be unlike what was all around me uh, religiously. Right. Lost to what that question meant, as to what that question even meant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. And I think, I think I said on the trip, I uh, through my high school years, I I actually knew three Jewish people. One was an Orthodox family. I think they were Orthodox. They lived across the street and had a deli. They must not have been terribly Orthodox because they drove. But, you know, we never saw them. I mean, they were always working in the deli. They owned the shopping center. And there was a one Jewish kid at my church. I was the editor of the newspaper, and he was the associate editor. And then this wonderful Jewish printer in downtown Memphis that every month I would drive the student paper down to, and they did the setting it with the old type machines and everything. It was Eugene Goldberger was his name. And, again, those are the Jews I was exposed to before I even – it really didn't, you know, got to seminary. But anyway, that's that's. Uh, so, what must I do to be saved? I also grew up, as many of you know, uh, in the South that was segregated. But that was, uh, I was 13 years old when Martin Luther King came to Memphis and was killed, and that was a seminal event in my life. I I had grown up. My parents were not overtly racist. Most of their friends were. Um, it was not uncommon for their friends and golfing buddies and tennis buddies to do nothing but um, complain about King and blame him for creating the dissatisfaction for being a communist. You know the whole ropes that that was going on in that time. And and one of my stories was uh, the afternoon he was shot, I'd come home from baseball practice and I was taking a shower and his boys do that. I put the transistor radio in the shower to listen to it, and the, you know, the, it was interrupted with news of his shooting. And I jumped out of the shower and put my clothes on and ran ran outside. My dad was working in the yard. And he was working with the in the yard, and a man from our church was there with 
had pulled up and they were just standing outside the car talking. Neither of them had heard the news. And this man from the church was very, very conservative, but very faithful and, and loyal to my parents and to the church. And, and I ran out and said, "Oh, they've, you know, they've shot Martin Luther King." And I, I don't know if, I don't know if he had died at that point, but uh, or if it had been announced. But I said, "Oh, you know, Martin Luther King's been shot." And this elder leader of our church, very good friend looked right at me or just immediately said he deserved it and pivoted on his heels and got in his car and drove off. I mean, that that's what I grew up with. And it was still, he deserved it. He deserved it. And that was still not the virulent, violent racism that, that existed in the South. I mean, it was a little bit. I didn't see people with guns on their pickup trucks and, you know, things like that. So anyway... So as as a young person who was who really was serious about my faith when when I realized that my minister in the Presbyterian Church was supportive of Dr. King that made a huge impact on me. And so then the question is okay well what must I do to be saved from the left which is not as good a term as it was 20 years ago. Um yeah I had a political or religious answer for that and and that is what I must do to be saved is to bear the cross and I remember reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book um, that um, The Cost of Discipleship which was a popular book in high school and it opens with the words when Christ calls a man a person he bids him come and die so the model of being a Christian in in, in that uh, tier was to be as pure as Mother Teresa, as courageous as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as fearless as Martin Luther King, as sacrificial even as, you know, recently as someone whom you all may know as, you know, the Quaker, Thomas Fox, the Quaker from Fairfax County who was killed in Iraq in 06 in what was essentially a pacifist peace mission that got a lot of publicity you know, around here. Um, in a wealthy, privileged, highly educated, culturally and technologically sophisticated society as ours, must we become a Mother Teresa, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or a Martin Luther King to be saved? Uh, I never said yes to that, but it was always a looming question and always felt me, you know, knowing that I would never say yes to that, that I didn't have that much courage or guts or willingness to sacrifice. It always always had a had a degree of guilt or of gap of a gap within me thinking that I was not a very good Christian. Which I'm not, but that was the form it took then. So the answer to this question um, came to me in in Romans six, one to twelve. And and it it came to me in uh, it was pointed out partially in this seminar that Beverly Gaventa taught in 1999 so it sort of helped me flesh out the answer but partially by reading a book by Hans Frey who was a theologian at Yale that was Jewish had converted to Christianity was a Holocaust survivor and taught Christology uh, at Yale through the 70s, although he died in his 50s at, at an early age. But if you'll turn to chapter 6, I, I want to read this, and 
highlight a few things uh, that helped me understand that when Christ calls a person, he's not necessarily calling that person to come and die. Okay, it gave me a relief from what was the legalism of that answer from the political left. In Romans 6, Paul is saying, What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come to die. When we have a baptismal service, we say we have been buried with Christ in his baptism so that we might be raised um, to newness of life. And it says it next. Therefore, we have been buried with Christ by baptism into death, which certainly would lead you to say that, that when we are baptized, we are willing to put our life on the line and die. That that's the model. Christ went into the water. You know, we, we would go into death. And this is the next phrase then. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, this is the analogy. Christ, I mean, Christ died and was raised. We are baptized with Christ in his death. So that not so that we obtain salvation, but so that we walk in newness of life. It, it is a call to life and of newness of life and that that's the impact of Christ's death on us. And then I want to continue. Uh, look down. I don't have the verse number, but where it says, For whoever has died is freed from sin. Okay. But if, we've, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's good. We know, and it's the next verse that's important. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Christ's death on the cross and his willingness to die was a one-time, unique event. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Whatever and wherever that means. But, but in the resurrected life he lives, he lives to God. And then Paul continues, So you all must consider yourselves dead to sin as Christ is dead to life and as Christ lives to God you we are alive to God in Christ Jesus so the analogy is that Christ's death does not necessarily call us to imitate him in death but it's to be freed for living to God, for living for God. Um, therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. 
and then there was an, an Easter sermon by Fry that I read that 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 says this even better. But but essentially, what I took away from that is that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was once for all. I mean, it was a one-time thing that benefits all of us. But our response to that is to put our feet on a new path of life. And that new path of life for any number of people can involve a willingness to die. It can involve Mother Teresa going and living in India the rest of her life. It can involve Bonhoeffer opposing the Nazis and losing his life. It can involve Martin Luther King being shot. It can involve Thomas Fox being, being a, you know, losing his life. Uh, but it doesn't have to involve that. That's not the only model. That the, that the model and what Paul uses is that because Christ died and was raised, we are baptized with Christ in his death and we are raised to newness of life. Our feet are put on a different path. And that path uh, will vary person to person. And, and that was what freed me or allowed me to say, okay, Larry, you can be a minister or you can be a Christian uh, without necessarily putting your life on the line. That's that's basically what I'm... That's the first part of this. Kurt. The way, the way I hear it myself is not a call to join Christ to die. It's for the simple, sinful you to die and to be born again. Right, right. Oh, I know. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with that language when it's used that way. Because not, they speak in a lot of metaphors. Right. Something in you is dying. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the phoenix that rise from the ashes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, okay. So anyway, my my point in saying this, and this is the first half of the half of the story, is that it was that level of reading and thought over about 10 or 15 years that helped free me from the guilt that I, to some extent, still carry around. You know, at living and serving in a privileged culture, loving reading, having much more fun organizing trips to Israel than going and taking two weeks and living with the poorest of the earth. I'm not even sure I could do what, what Kurt does for a weekend of going into prisons. You know, and as and as I've said many times, in His infinite wisdom, God spared the United States of America from me having to serve in the military because I would have been terrible and brought the whole thing down. You know, I just don't. But that's the that's the freedom that I mean. I'm I'm really saying this as a, as an exercise of freedom, but it it is it is up to me and my life and my life with God in defining in defining what that turn means, what it means for me to put my feet on a new path of life as, as part of living to God um, because of this. So, that, so if the tyranny, so if that was the tyranny of the right, the tyranny of the 
I mean the tyranny of the left, the tyranny of the right from which I needed freeing was, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Have you been born again? Which is a huge question in evangelical and southern culture. And believe me, when you grow up a Presbyterian, not and certainly as a Jew, at least I understood the question. But, you know, I... You'd have to ask people who pose it. You'd have to ask people who pose it. I mean, it's a smart aleck answer, but I think that in American Christianity particularly, there is a very strong belief that the way you become a Christian is to have a conversion experience. You must be born again, and you need to be able to say when you gave your life to Christ, the date and the time. And that's what's behind the question. I understand that, but if you, if you truly love your, your fellow man as a, as a brother or sister, and you love because it's a love unto God, the que- why would you even feel you had to have that acknowledgement from someone? I think, well, I think I'm people that saying. feel they ask that question are asking it because they believe they want to make sure that your soul is right with God. They're doing it. Yeah. Like, God, if you answer no, yeah. then they're going to be on you. Yeah. Like, I know this. Family, yeah. Right? They are going to try to convert you and they're not going to give up. Um, and that happened to me. And it was quite Is to try to convert you for your benefit. It's for your benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Joanne, I, I don't want to get too far afield on speculating about somebody else. I want to show. I want to get to how I came to peace in answering that question for myself. And just ask you to trust that that question's out there and that many, many people feel compelled to ask it. Okay? That's, and, and do, yeah. Okay. Terry? Um, it, to me, it's basically two things. One is the people that ask this have a feeling that they have to basically save you. Yes. Evangelical. Okay? Yes. So, and the second thing is, in any sort of group that is religious and has this as one of their, quote, checkpoints, that's what they're going to ask you. Yeah. You know, join our club, i.e. our religion, you've got to be saved. Yeah. So let's get off of their motivation, okay? Let's put that aside, put it out in the hall. We can figure that one out later, okay? What I want to talk about is is what was a real breakthrough for me. And I, to do that, I would like you to turn to Romans 3, 21 through 22, okay? Romans 3, 21 through 22. 
Here's how it reads. This is Paul speaking. But now, irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. The righteousness of God, this is the key word, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the wording. Faith in Jesus Christ through all who believe. And the way growing up and in, in well, into, well, well into my adulthood, the way I always interpreted that was I have to have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. It's faith, the righteousness of God is revealed from my faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, whatever the second part is. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That, that phrase implies that I have to have faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Uh, now, I grew up feeling that faith in Christ is what leads us to be saved. That faith in Christ, I mean, if, if you believe this, faith in Christ is what leads us to be saved. Faith in Christ, or instilling faith in Christ, is the purpose of the church. And instilling faith in Christ is the work of the minister. That it's my job, through preaching, teaching, hospital visiting, feeding the homeless, youth group, leading the youth group, to try to have everybody who has gathered to, to have faith, to come to and make a decision to have faith in Jesus Christ, including you. Okay? So, now, I never did that. I never felt comfortable with it. I never felt right about it. I never felt like it was the right answer. But for many, many years... I felt either guilty or the possibility that I was a fraud by not doing this. Okay, that's a little bit strong language. It didn't stop me from going on, you know. But 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 you're always as a Christian growing up in the culture that I grew up, not having had a born again experience myself and being very adamant that I probably wasn't going to so back off. Somehow God's going to love me even though I haven't had a born again experience. But growing up in a culture where that was dominant, I, you know, I had a little bit of a, you know, insecurity complex about it. So, um, so two questions arose for me. First, does this mean that in order to be saved, one has to have a palpable faith in Jesus Christ? Even if one lived before the time of Christ, which you always ask as a kid, or if one lives in a culture or a family where one has never been exposed to Christ. It's the old question. What about the people in Africa that have never heard of Christ? Are they saved? <laughs> do they? Okay, we don't do that. So that, that wasn't an option. And second, am I as a Christian defective in my faith? And furthermore, Am I, as a minister, defective if I am not gearing most of my energy to seeking to instill faith in Christ among all that I meet? 
In other words, should every sermon lead, if not to an altar call, at least to the challenge at the end, the answer to the problem poised in this sermon is for you to believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I invite you, urge you to believe in Christ. And I am asked that today. I mean, there are there are people in the congregation, not many, but there are some in the congregation who basically say, hey, that was a really good sermon today, but you didn't, you stopped on third base you know, or second or first. You didn't bring it home by asking us to commit to Christ. Okay? So it's carrying around the, you know, Judith, the Jewish guilt that I might be insecure and not doing it right, okay, as a minister. Kurt. You know where I see what, what you're saying is what we started with. You're trying to follow this prescription, this law of man. And right. It's right. 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 So I'm going to get to that. Thank you. That's good. So my answer or my deeper resolution to this question, and I just, you know, I somehow stubbornly believed that I was okay came in the 1999 Movable Feast when Beverly Roberts Gaventa taught, and, and she pointed me to the most liberating footnote. It's not even a footnote, a translation note I have ever seen in my life, and you have to squint to see it. But look at Romans 3.22, and it has a little K there. Squint really hard. It has a little K it should, okay? And then look down at the, at the column below that. That is what's called a translation note. And it says, it can be translated another way, the righteousness of God has been disclosed through the faith of Jesus Christ to all who believe. That is so expletive deleted different okay <laughs> you know the f- faith in Jesus Christ versus the faith of Jesus Christ and what she said is that it's verbally is that that what that is speaking of is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that it is Jesus Christ's utter devotion to God his utter devotion to giving his life on the cross, his utter devotion to us, his being this cosmological uh, victor in this battle over slavery and sin and death, and, and his life and death and resurrection being that which defeats evil and sin and death. That's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and it's that which bestows salvation upon us. It's not... Our effort. Yes, sir. Yes. Not just leads, but also illuminates our path. Right. Right. It. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's being set right with God. But that that is something that solely Jesus Christ does. Okay? And the way to respond to that, the only way to respond to that is without the expletive deletives. Expletives deleted is, wow. 
you know, how, what can I do to say thanks for that? You see? Wow. I mean, and, and so her conclusions are, we are saved because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not because of our, of our own ability to have faith in Christ. The event is more cosmic. It's more up here than it is personal. It's not letting Jesus into your heart, and therefore you're suddenly going to heaven. It's because of what Christ has done up here uh, that, that makes the difference. It is the action of God, not our action. Therefore, we can and should refrain from seeking to determine who's in and who's out. How can you ask that question when this is what Christ has done? Why do you? Yeah, I know. That's where you were, Joanne. You're just eight steps ahead of me. How, I mean, how can you ask the question of who benefits from this? I mean, it's not our question to ask. We can and should feel free to trust that God will take care of the matter of salvation of ourselves and others in whatever way God chooses. We can wipe that off of our slate of worries, which basically, psychologically, I, I had long since done. I mean, I, I'm not willing to say who's in and out. I'm not willing to say that God will definitely save Adolf Hitler. I'm not willing to say that. I don't know the answer to that, you know, but I'm not willing to say, well, you're in and you're not and you're in and you're not, you know, it's it's not my call. It's not my call. Correct. Correct. Which is exactly the worm at the core of the apple because it originates, Joanne, in a positive instinct. I am going to try to make Kurt a Christian because if if Kurt becomes a Christian, then Kurt will be saved. And what is, there's nothing greater I can do for Kurt than that. The instinct behind it is good. Now, that has led people to go to war over that. It's led people, well, I've got to kill you, you know, so that you'll be saved. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of negatives that grow out from that. But let's give it the benefit of the doubt. So we are, and finally, we are free to respond to the terrific grace of God with our own lives, not with any attempt to achieve some level of belief or feeling of being in Christ or of some particular level of sacrifice and service. I mean, I may be called to go to India tomorrow. I doubt it. But I may be, you know. Well, I, don't, I mean, I may be, you know. I can't say when or when I wouldn't give my life. But... You're defective. Yes. Yes. And in fact, each person has his or her calling, right? Like not, not it's not only that you don't want to do certain things, there are some things that not everybody is good at. Right. So, you know, 
else, I will go and I will do what Mother Teresa did, or I will. It, you are defective because you wouldn't be willing. No, to I do don't that. think that. But it's, but, but never underestimate the ability of the human mind to think that we're defective. Okay. Amen. You ought to know that. Sometimes, so what? Yeah. So what? We are. We are. Very yeah. We are created by God. We are loved by God, notwithstanding all of this. And the, the, the glory of, of faith and knowledge of Christ is to know that He washes over all that stuff. Yeah. And so my defects, so what? I can, if somebody calls me a hypocrite, yeah, so tell me something I don't know. Yeah. And I, I, I think the last little thing, and then I want to send you all to your discussion groups. Uh, I've got to say that that part of this came, you know, in the background of this is another passage, you know, from from the Gospel of John, you must be born again. And I have always been, I mean, my, this church that we grew up in, which was a wonderful Presbyterian church, was uh, sort of at the forefront of having small group sharing Ministry where adults in the church would be paired with others and would be trained to really share a lot, and that did not fit my parents. and And I can remember, uh, as much as we loved that church, we were sort of on the outside of that. And I can remember when my dad was sick, a, a neighbor in the church wanted to wor- organize a prayer chain or a par- prayer group for him. And I remember my mom saying, "Please don't do that because we don't want people's faith to be hurt." If he doesn't make it, I mean that's how strong this sort of, you know, unemotional uh, aspect of faith was in my upbringing. And so, I have always resisted the born of the born again law as saying that you know some people just are not very emotional, and I can't believe that God requires a certain level of emotional temperature, you know, in order to let you in. So I sort of started always wanting to carve a place out for people who are not necessarily born again. I have also come to a much, much deeper appreciation of how real that experience is and how and how widespread it is relatively, even in churches that are as intellectual, you know, as ours is. That people, I mean, you all don't, a lot of, you know, you all don't come here because you haven't been touched by the Spirit, because you haven't had something really significant happen to you. That That's as powerful as a born-again movement. So it, it's a both and. But again, if it's what Christ did that that draws us into this community and makes us right with God, it doesn't matter how that impacts us, how that, you know, how we appropriate that. What matters is that, wow, he did that, and I'm going to put my feet on a new path of life, whatever that is. So what I'd like you to do at your table, and George and Terry, we don't want these two old guys over here talking, so why don't you join this? And and Marianne, you can. No, you all go over there. So Marianne needs some. Or y'all can go over there. Okay. You two go over there. You got to have more than two people. So, Marianne, you're going to have to redeem three men tonight by keeping them on track. Okay. All right. Everybody else is okay.
So I guess, you know, the next 15 minutes, uh, question one is, and I'll, I'll do it this way, just, so let's just do question one first, is how do you react to the distinction between faith in Jesus Christ and the faith of Jesus Christ? What do you feel is closer to describing your experience and beliefs as a Christian, if you, if you are? Just talk about that first one here for about five to seven minutes. So let me give you an opportunity at your table to go on to the second question if you want. If you're fruitful where you are, stay where you are. But, but the second question is, can you say or share an experience where Christ being raised from the dead has meant that your feet have been set on a new path of life. Okay? You can answer that. You can stay with the other one. But you have to keep the chattering going for five more minutes. All right? (laughs) 